Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 17 this morning. In a moment, we'll read verses 8 through 16. And I'm reminded of what it says in the book of Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Lord is sending forth his word this morning, and it will not return to him empty will not be void. We'll do exactly what the Lord purposes it to do. Listen to that again. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word always succeeds. With those thoughts, would you stand with me as I read Exodus Chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in, the book, in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us through your Word so that we might listen and obey and be made new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
how many enemies do you have? Perhaps that isn't something that you've thought about lately, recently. Maybe you'd be quick to say, I don't have any enemies. I love everybody and everybody loves me. Or at least I like everybody and I want everybody to like me. And I wonder if we've been conditioned to think that the normal way of life and what we are aiming for is not to have any enemies whatsoever. That somehow we would be able to win everybody to our side. That of all people in this world, we as Christians shouldn't have any enemies, right? Lives that are built on God's love? Lives that are dedicated to showing love towards others? We would like to think that we can be at peace with all people. Unfortunately, that is a very worldly way of thinking. To think that we can get to that place where we have no enemies. But this is what the Bible says. We as Christians will have enemies and there is no way to escape that. And there is no way to escape it because Jesus Christ has enemies. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Yet, will we ever think, no, no, the world won't hate us. The world should love us, or at least the world should tolerate us. And if we're truthful, do we ever want the world to love us? To be approved by the world? Are we ever deceiving ourselves, thinking that if we just had no enemies, if the world just loved us, if we were liked and thought of well, that then our life would be blessed? But this is not how Jesus defines the blessed life. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Who says that? Blessed, happy, flourishing, fulfilled when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name. Why? Because you're a jerk? Because you hate others? Because you are looking to make enemies? Because you are evil? No. Simply because you love Christ on account of the Son of Man. You follow King Jesus. You confess that He is Lord. It's simply because you are Christ's and He is yours. Simply because you bear His name. So yes, even rejoice, for this is the blessed life. We do not go out looking to make enemies. And in fact, our attitude and posture towards enemies is different than the world. What else does Jesus say? He says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who, who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How utterly and completely different is this than the world thinks? The world does not treat their enemies this way. 
They seek to harm their enemies. They desire their own downfall and their own blood. But Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And Paul even picks up on this thought in Romans. He says this in Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did you hear, as Jesus and as Paul are saying these words, that there is this underlying assumption that you will have enemies? Let us not be so naive to think that we will have no enemies or even to think that we have no enemies right now. Jesus Christ has enemies. God has enemies. And so we will have enemies, and these enemies will attack. These enemies will wage war. These enemies will rage against us. Our enemies know no restraint. They will come after us, seeking our destruction and even our death. Do we have enemies? If we are Christians, yes, we do. Let me offer a word of caution. As I've just been trying to show that we are those who should expect to have enemies in this world, and these enemies can be other people, not just talking about the devil or Satan, he is an enemy. But these enemies can be physical people. That is a normal part of the Christian life. Let us not swerve from the ditch of thinking we have no enemies into the other ditch of trying to find enemies behind every rock and tree and nook and cranny. If you have a disagreement with somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are your enemy. If someone annoys you, that doesn't mean that they're your enemy. If someone disrupts your life in a way that you don't like, doesn't mean that they are your enemy. If someone cuts you off when you're driving, I know it's difficult, but in that moment, they are not your enemy. If your boss is a jerk to you, it does not mean that he or she is your enemy. If the store doesn't provide the customer service you think that they should, it doesn't mean that they are your enemy. Let us not be too quick to call everything or everyone our enemy when we don't get what we want. Our true enemies are those whose actions, attitudes, and words have an opposition concerning redemptive significance. And so they attack our proclamation of the gospel. They attack and deride the truth of the Bible. They are opposed to godly living and Christ's likeness in the lives of believers, and they would seek to stifle it or snuff it out altogether. They persecute us simply because we love Jesus Christ. What will happen when our true enemies attack? What will be the result? This is the question the Israelites face in the wilderness. They are in this school of the wilderness, being tested by God. It started when they came to Mara and they had bitter water that was made sweet. When Moses threw the tree into the water, they learned that the Lord is our healer. They next moved to that place where they had no food, but where the Lord provided manna for them day after day after day, and they learned that the Lord is their sustainer. Then they came to Rephidim, and then they had no water, yet the Lord there stood on the rock, and the rock was struck, providing water, and we learned that the Lord is truly among them, the one who saves by His grace. The people of Israel are in the crucible. 
That is, they are in this refining fire, and they're still there even now as we come to these verses, in this refining fire of Rephidim, this place of uncertainty. They hadn't been removed out of this place yet. Think about it. When you're in that place of uncertainty, what do you want? Lord, get me out. Stop this. I don't want to feel this way. I don't like it. It's not good. Lord, take away the uncertainty. How much would you worry if there was no uncertainty in your life? (laughs) Yet, here they are, still at this place of uncertainty. Why are they there? They're there for their own good. They're there because that's where God wants them to be, in that place of uncertainty. And now they are attacked, and they are uncertain whether help is going to come. And before we move too quickly past these events, let us remember the Israelites, when they were experiencing these events, they didn't know the outcome. For us, we read it and we just read a few more verses and we get the end of the story. But when they only had bitter water to drink, they didn't know that the water was going to be made sweet. When they had no food, they didn't know that the Lord was going to provide food. When they had no water, they didn't know that the Lord was going to provide water until He did. And now they're being attacked and they don't know how they're going to be helped. They're in these circumstances of uncertainty. They don't know the outcome of the event but they are learning and we are learning with them that in the midst of that uncertainty, in the midst of not knowing what's going to happen in the future, God is never uncertain. It's never a doubt or a question in his mind. What uncertainty do you know in your life right now? What questions do you have about what's going to happen in the days to come? What do you do? Where do you go? How do you respond? Let's not pretend that it's easy. With uncertainty comes pressure upon your life, upon your heart, and upon your soul. God is never uncertain about the outcome. He knows what's going to happen. He is always faithful. So while our vision is limited by our circumstances, if we feel uncertain by what lies ahead, let us look to the Lord and enlarge our vision of Him by reminding ourselves of His truth so that we depend more and more on Him and less and less on ourselves and on the circumstances that we find in our lives. And so here is Israel at Rephidim, and they are attacked Where are they attacked from? Well, they are attacked from without, right? There are these enemies who are coming upon them. And here is an area of what I would call a zone of turbulence in the Bible. As we've been going through these events, Mara, people are grumbling. No food, the people are grumbling. No water, the people are grumbling. Guess what now? No more grumbling. (laughs) There's been a break in the pattern, hasn't there? Grumbling, 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 no grumbling here. And I think that break in that pattern is meant to tell us something. It's meant to tell us that the enemies of God should not be those who come from within should not be those who are among the people of God. The enemies are those who are out there, not in here. The thwarting of God's plan and the hostility should not spring up from among the people of God because there are enough enemies out there. That is ideal. 
that is the way it should be among God's people. But we who have ears to hear should be on guard because Acts 20.30, Paul tells this to the Ephesian elders. He says this, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples away after them. It's ideal that the enemies are out there, not in here. Israel, you are grumbling against God. You are attacking God from within. That's not the way it should be. The enemies should be out there. Be on guard. Watch over your hearts so that no one would come from among yourselves, and so we must be on guard. Our enemies want to attack. Notice as we think about this text, Amalek comes, and they fight with Israel at Rephidim. Notice that Israel does not instigate the fight. (laughs) They did not go out looking for a fight. The fight found them. And when pressed, they defended themselves. They did not run away from the fight. And here it is, these people of Amalek. Amalek was a grandson of Esau. He was one of the sons. Esau was one of the sons of Isaac. Esau was the brother of Jacob. And now these people who likewise descended from Abraham attacked their own kinsmen. They were not, though, of the seed of the woman. They were of the seed of the serpent. And it says that they came and they fought with Israel. They are the instigators. They came looking for the fight. They were the aggressors, the attackers. They were despicable and evil in their attack. How can I say that? Well, Deuteronomy 25 helps enlarge our vision of this event. If you turn back there a little bit in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18. Moses says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how they attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. You see what Amalek did? Amalek attacked those who were tired and weary and those who were lagging behind. They were attacking the weakest of Israel. They were cowards. But did you hear the main problem there that Deuteronomy said? They did not fear God. How little did they think of God? How puny was he in their minds? They thought, we can cut off the lowest of the low. We can cut off the weakest, the most helpless, and we can get away with it. And there will be no consequences, no repercussions, no payback whatsoever. We are going to cut off their tail and get away with it. And these are those who are the enemies of the Lord. They have no fear of the Lord. They do not revere Him. They do not stand in awe of Him. They do not regard Him as holy in any way. And so they believe that they can do what is right in their own eyes in attacking God's people. But the Lord will respond. And as the enemy attacks, we can wonder and ask ourselves, will the Lord prevail? Will He care for us? To think of the Amalekites coming and attacking the weakest of the Israelites, wanting to destroy them, wanting to annihilate them, wanting to kill them. Lord, what are you going to do? We're being attacked. We're trying to make our way through the wilderness. Our passage teaches us that the Lord will prevail. 
and it gives us the certainty and the assurance that he will provide. In the end, the Lord will win. The enemy, though they might seem strong, secure, unstoppable, the Lord shows that he is greater than all those who oppose him. And so in our text, the Lord teaches how he will prevail. So three ways he will prevail that spring out of this text this morning. You can find these in your bulletin if they are helpful. But number one, the Lord will prevail through his chosen servants. The Lord will prevail through his chosen servants. In our text, we're introduced to uh, some new characters. While much of the words and actions revolve around Moses, first we're told about this man Joshua, aren't we? It's the first time we ever hear of Joshua in the Bible, and we're not given much, much explanation about who this Joshua is. I think the initial readers, when Moses said Joshua, they knew who this Joshua was. But this Joshua is the Joshua who would one day replace Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel. If you read through this, this man Joshua was once named Hosea, and his name is changed to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. He is the leader who is going to bring the Israelites into the promised land. He is the one who the Lord is going to commission to drive out all of the enemies in the promised land. And so now here he is, this first fight, told to choose men who will go out and fight with Amalek. He's in charge of gathering the army, gathering the men who are able, perhaps even gathering those who have weapons. We don't know how many weapons the Israelites had. Maybe a lot of those weapons came from their plundering of Egypt. And so Joshua is charged to lead this army. And Joshua, if you see this here in verse 13, it says that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Or very literally, it says, with the mouth of his sword, he overwhelmed Amalek. Next, we see the leader of all Israel, Moses. Moses says that he will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And so Moses went up to this hill, most likely this hill overlooking the battlefield where Joshua and the Amalekites are fighting. There he is on the hill with his brother Aaron and with this other man named Hur. Now we know Aaron had a particular role in helping bring the people out of Egypt as Moses' right-hand man. Hur, we don't know too much about him. Some say maybe he was the husband of Miriam, Moses' sister. Maybe he was the Hur that's talked about at the end of Exodus with the grandson of Bezalel who was in charge of constructing the tabernacle. But either way, these two men had an important role with Moses as he's up on this hill. There is Moses with the staff of God in his hand, and it says that whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. See how the actions by Moses had a direct impact on the battle. It matters if Moses held up his hand or if he didn't. The outcome of the battle depended on what Moses did or did not do. But there was a problem, wasn't there, with Moses? Even with this chosen servant of the Lord, this chosen servant was weak. It seems that as one hand the one hand with the staff of God and it began to fail. He had to use two hands to hold up the staff of God to keep it outstretched towards the heavens. His arms, however, grew weary. Literally, it says that they grew heavy and so he needed assistance. And so Aaron and Hur found a stone. They put it under Moses so he could sit on it. And they, on one side and on the other side, held up and supported his hands and his arms to keep them outstretched to ensure that they didn't drop. And this went on the whole day. It says that Moses 
had his hands raised until the going down of the sun. It says that his hands were steady. In fact, it gives this description. It says, his hands were steadiness. As if it was the steadiness of Moses' hands that provided the steadiness and stability the Israelites needed as they fought the Amalekites. And so Joshua overwhelmed. The idea there that he disabled and disarmed those who had attacked the disabled and the disarmed of Israel. Notice how the Amalekites are turned completely upon their heads. What wonder comes into our minds as we see how the Lord accomplishes this deliverance through his chosen servants. Could God have done it a different way? Did God need Moses to lift up the staff so that they would win? I mean, couldn't God have just have said a word or done something differently? But yet, the Lord used his chosen servants as the means to accomplish the deliverance from the enemies. How amazing that the Lord works through his chosen servants and ultimately through his one chosen servant, his own son, Jesus Christ. Even through this servant's weakness and death and resurrection, the Lord delivers his people from all of their enemies. This is the chosen servant that we read about in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, says the Lord, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintfully burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. While Moses became weak and needed his hands to be lifted up, there is another chosen servant who will not grow weary, who will not grow faint, whose strength will always be exactly what is needed, and who will provide deliverance over the enemies and perfect and complete justice. That's the chosen servant that we rely on that we need. Intercede for us on our behalf and care for us. And so the Lord will prevail through his chosen servants, but number two, the Lord will also prevail by his sovereign power. The Lord will prevail by his sovereign power. While Moses, Joshua, and Aaron, and Hur have their actions front and center in the text, we cannot and must not deny who is behind all of this. Is it not the Lord? Is it God doing this? Who is it that ultimately causes Joshua to win? Who is it that gives the victory? Whose strength and power is needed to overcome the Amalekites? It is undeniably the Lord. We are given hints that this is no one other than the Lord in the text. First, Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill. Tomorrow becomes a significant day in Exodus. In fact, if we go back to the plagues, with the plagues it was, tomorrow I will do this or that. Tomorrow I will do this or that with each of those plagues. And so with this word tomorrow, We are warned and being set up to expect that the Lord will do something. The Lord will act. And the Lord is going to display his power through judgment tomorrow. And so Moses held up the staff to demonstrate God's sovereign power, which would fall upon his enemies in judgment. It is a sign that the Lord is fighting for Israel. It points to him as the one who is ultimately to be glorified in the outcome of this battle. And it was only because the Lord empowered his people that they were victorious. 
What a great reminder that is not our own strength, our own ability, our own intellect, or anything else we might depend upon in order to win the battle, in order to be victorious. We depend completely and entirely on the Lord's sovereign power. Is he strong enough? Is he powerful enough? Does he have what it takes? His sovereign power is everything and it cannot and will not be toppled or thwarted. The Lord fights for his people and his Sovereign power subdues the strongest, most fierce, most terrifying of enemies. His judgment will fall upon them, but through the judgment of his enemies comes the deliverance and salvation of his people. Just as Moses stretched out his hand with the staff in it over the waters of the Red Sea and they were split with the culmination then of the Egyptians being drowned in the water and being judged, So Moses stretched out the staff of God again, enduring the weakness and the heaviness of his arms to show that God's sovereign power will accomplish precisely what it intends to accomplish, even despite or through the weakness of his chosen servant. And so we rejoice in the sovereign power of the Lord, because how long does all of this take? It takes only one day. They held up Moses' hands until the sun went down. And that was all that the Lord needed for him to secure the victory over his enemies. What might have taken Israel multiple days or multiple attempts or multiple battles, the Lord did it all in one day. And this is what we come to hope for. We hope in the day of the Lord. What is that day? The day when all the enemies of Christ will finally and fully be placed underneath his feet. A day of judgment to be sure, but at the same time, a day of great salvation for all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord prevails through his chosen servants. The Lord prevails by his sovereign power And finally, three, the Lord will prevail over all his enemies. The Lord will prevail over all his enemies. Look at what it says here in verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. The event that took place here is to be remembered to be a memorial. Remember what Joshua will do in the future? He's about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. But what do they find in the promised land? More enemies. He is going to need to hear this reminder. In the midst of other uncertainty, he might feel. He's going to need to hear, remember when the Lord fought for you against the Amalekites and won in a day? And Joshua, was it because of you? Was it because of you ultimately? It was because of the Lord and his power and his strength. It was because of that staff of God that Moses was holding up on that hill. So Joshua needed to be reminded. And what did he need to remember? That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That seem weird to you? Let's just take a step back for a second. So the Lord is promising to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And here we are, three to four thousand years later, and we're still talking about Amalek. (laughs) 
They're still here. What's the Lord saying? What's the Lord promising? He's saying, I'm going to cut off these enemies. They are not going to prosper. I'm going to end their posterity. Their line is going to come to an end. I am going to blot them out. The seed of the serpent will no longer be propagated. It will come to an end. And this promise holds true even as Israel continues to fight the Amalekites. In fact, they're going to fight the Amalekites again just before they enter the land in Numbers 13. Saul is going to fight the Amalekites. In fact, do you remember that Saul has the kingdom stripped from him, ripped from him, because he doesn't obey the Lord in committing everything of the Amalekites to destruction. He saves their king, Agag. Then you remember what Samuel has to come and do? Samuel has to come and he says, he hacks Agag to pieces. David later on in his life would fight the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 30. In fact, we even see the Amalekites raise their ugly head again when you get to the book of Esther. Who fought the Israelites in the book of Esther? A man named Haman. Haman the what? Haman the Agite. Haman was a descendant of that king Agag that was hacked to pieces who was an Amalekite. Who in the end was hung upon his own gallows. The Lord will defeat all of his enemies. They will not continue. They will be blotted out and remembered no more. Would that ever be a concern of yours? The, the idea here in verse 17, or I'm sorry, verse 14, that I will utterly blot out. It's in blotting out, I will blot out. It's for certain I'm going to blot these people out. Would you ever be worried that you might be blotted out? That you might come to an end? There's hope for the believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, look with me for a moment. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, verse 5. says, Jesus, talking to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, 5 says this. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Amalek, you're going to be blotted out, but to the one who conquers, to the one who is clothed in these white garments, I will never blot out your name in that place where it is needed to be seen and found in the book of life. All who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ never have to be worried that their name will ever be blotted out. And do you hear in this the battle imagery to the one who conquers? That is and are Christians. They are the ones who conquer. They are the ones who are victorious. And how is it that we conquer? How is it that we are more than conquerors? The ones who conquer are those who hear the message and do not close our ears or our hearts to the message, but we respond to the message. We listen to the words of the risen Christ and of the Holy Spirit through His Word. We persevere then in faith and obey in suffering. 
And so we overcome and conquer and endure and hold on to the faith and contend for the faith until the end. And we do not compromise in worship and we do not capitulate to society or to culture. So here is this great assurance to the one who conquers that your name will never be blotted out in the book of life. The enemies of God, their names will be blotted out. They will come to an end, but not so for the one who is following Christ. And so Moses builds an altar. Just like many who come, have come before him, Noah built an altar. Abraham built two altars. Isaac built an altar. Jacob built an altar. Now Moses builds this altar an altar most likely not for sacrifice, but an altar for remembrance, for commemoration. And I love this. Moses constructs this altar, and then he names the altar, the Lord is my banner. What is that? What is this kind of language? This idea of a banner would be a, like a banner or a, a standard, a pole, often used by armies or militaries. And on this pole would be sometimes an emblem, sometimes a flag, sometimes a banner. And this standard or this pole would be the rallying point for the army. They would use this standard as a point of focus for them. And so as they focused on this emblem or this banner or these colors, this flag, they would have hope in the midst of their fight to go on, to persevere, to endure. And now what does Moses say? He says, the Lord is my banner. Notice the personal nature of this rallying point. This rallying point is not around a thing. This rallying point is not around a physical pole or a standard. This rallying point is not around a physical banner. This rallying point is around God himself, the Lord, Yahweh, all who focus on Him have hope in Him. All who look to Him will persevere and will endure. All who look to Him will, will fight for Him. He is the object that we are rallying around. But how easy is it for us to rally around selfish things? How often do we rally around things that really don't matter and that really don't last? What is it, as God's people, that we are going to rally around? What is it that we are going to focus on and say, yes, we're so focused on this that we will persevere and that we will endure in the face of uncertainty, in the face of not knowing what's going to happen, in the face of despair or dismay, in the face of being attacked by the enemy? What is it that we are going to rally around and say, no, we will not give up, we will not give in, we will trust it is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. In fact, look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11.10. 11, it gets better. It gets better. Isaiah 11.10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who is that? In that day, the root of Jesse, who is the root of Jesse? That is the Messiah i.e., in other words, Jesus Christ. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner or a signal or a standard for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So now, what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says there's going to come this root from Jesse, this Messiah, and guess what? He is the standard. He is the rallying point. We rally around Jesus Christ. 
It is Him, our Savior, who draws us together. He is our focus. There is no other rallying point. It is in Him and in Him alone. If we are going to endure, it's because of Jesus Christ. There is, let me say it clearly, there is no other rallying point but Him. All other standards, all other banners will crumble and fall if it's not Jesus Christ. And we not only can make a lot of selfish things a bad rallying point, but we can even take a lot of good things and make them a rallying point, but they are not the ultimate rallying point. If it's not Jesus Christ, it's not going to give us hope. It's not going to cause us to persevere or endure. And what else would we want to be a rallying point? What else besides Christ? What is better? There is nothing. There is no one. What is it that we want to be known for? We want to be known for Christ. For standing upon His truth. For looking to Him. He is our hope and, as it says here, the hope of the nations. Everybody and anybody will only find their hope in Him. And He will topple all of our enemies. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 20 through 26. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying what? After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You have enemies? As a Christian, you do. And death is also our enemy. How can we say with certainty that God will prevail, the Lord will prevail over all of his enemies? Because not even death wins in the end. Not even death. The last enemy will be conquered. Is that your hope? Is that the hope that you live by each and every day? Is that the hope that you have in the face of enemies? Don't Fear the one who could just give you a little bit of harm here and now. Fear the Lord who holds your eternal soul in his hand. He is the one. He is the one who is to be feared. And there's a warning here that comes at the end. In Exodus 15, or 17, I'm sorry, Exodus 17. A hand upon the throne of the Lord the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here is a warning that goes out, I believe. This idea of a hand upon the throne could also be a hand against the throne. And I believe this is the description of what Amalek was doing. 
the Amaleks thought that they could put out a hand against the Lord, that they could say, we are unwilling to come underneath your authority, that we are refusing to acknowledge your sovereign power, Yahweh, over all the earth. And so they were fighting with the Lord, ultimately. Is your hand ever on the throne, so to speak? God, I want to be in control. I want to determine the outcome. I want it my own way. I'm going to make up my own rallying point. We are those who do not put our hand against the throne of the Lord. We are those who have placed ourselves underneath his throne, who submit to his sovereignty, who trust in his faithfulness and goodness and justice, who are willing even to lose our life even unto death for him because of the love that he has shown to us, a love that will never leave us. What can separate us from the love that we have in Christ? Nothing can separate us. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us and prevail. Is this the hope that you know? If you do not know this hope, let me invite you today to come to Christ. He is the one who came to this earth, who lived the perfect life, sinless, who then died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice in the place of sinners, taking our sin upon himself, bearing the wrath and judgment of God that we deserved so that then all who put their faith and trust in him could be forgiven of their sin. And not only did he die on the cross, but he also three days later rose again from the dead, showing that his sacrifice is final and full atonement to pay the price for all the sins that we've ever committed, past, present, and future. And so bring us into God's family. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day to call out to him. Today is the day to say, yes, the Lord is my banner. And rallying around him will not eliminate all uncertainty, will not eliminate all trials or testing, will not eliminate even sadness or suffering. But it will give us hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would use it in our hearts. You will have spoken to us through your word, then, Father, I pray that we, as Christ's church, would be rallying around our Savior. He is our banner and our standard. And, Father, forgive us if there is anything that might be distracting us. Forgive us if there is anything that is getting in the way of us rallying around Christ. Whether it's a selfish rallying point or whether we would even say it's something good, if it's not Christ, it will not last. So Father, I ask that today you would open our eyes to anything and everything that we might be hoping in, that we might be trusting in, that we might be relying upon that isn't Christ. And as we consider every area of our lives, all the actions that we take, all the thoughts that we think, all the attitudes that flow out of our hearts, Father, that they all might be 
all actions, thoughts, and attitudes would be done with a desire to magnify Jesus Christ. And Father, as we fight, even in this spiritual battle, we will have enemies. We pray that you would give us your strength and give us feet that are ready to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.